Hey everybody, this is our preview of the Rank and File Part 2. Uh, I'm very excited about it. And if you want the whole thing, go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and give us $5 a month. It's what allows us to run the show. We're entirely listener-supported, and that's why we have to do the little paywall thing. Uh, if you can't afford to become a patron, go ahead and hop in the Discord and message one of the admins in there, and we would be happy to hook you up with the episodes. You know, everybody needs this education, and uh, we're happy to help with that in whatever way we have possible. Well, anyway, let's get on with the preview. Yeah, that's kind of the history of the AFL and CIO merger in a in a kind of a, a very short you know, version. But, uh, I mean, the the state was making several attempts to destroy the UE during this Red Scare period. Uh, multiple shop leaders were jailed for contempt of court after refusing to cooperate with the House of Un- the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, where they were doing a witch hunt for all of these communists, basically trying to purge them from unions and any sorts of actual leadership positions. And while the attacks from the government and the reformist business unions did hurt UE's membership, the only reason the UE survived the onslaught was its commitment to the rank and file method that they have still that they still have today. And and like this led to actually a militant belief in the union itself to actually have some of the strongest leaders and fiercely loyal members of this union that were the reason that it still exists today. Uh of the unions purged from the CIO uh, for being too left-wing, uh, like John was kind of mentioning, the only two that exist today are UE and the ILWU. So if with, this is part of the reason why we hold up those unions so often, the reason why we, we point to them as such really solid examples of rank-and-file unions, because that method of engaging with all of the memberships and militant uh, struggle has actually kept them alive this entire period uh, while defending the rights of, you know, like black people and uh, discriminate people who have been discriminated against, women, all, all of those uh, sorts of things. Um, and as we've kind of been saying, unlike many of the class collaborationist unions at the time, the UE actually stood staunchly against the war in Vietnam. Uh, and supported the protest movement against it. They were also one of the first unions to fight for the ability to organize undocumented workers, uh, still in that, uh, which at the time was just basically ignored by major U.S. unions. And while the UE did lose many members during the years of labor's retreat in the 80s, which again, go back and listen to the, uh, the decline of American unionism, because that is, again, kind of a preface to this if you haven't listened to it, uh, but mo- this was mostly due to like plant closures, and uh, unlike business unions, they refused to accept conciliatory contracts, and so honestly, capital flight became part of the issue here. And like you know, we can- it's capital flight is not a real threat uh, in in many senses of the way that it's portrayed in in media but it is something that does happen in certain cases i think we see was the great lakes coffee workers who are who struck for their union recognition are possibly seeing their business close i i think that the doors closed but they haven't officially closed i, I don't know we'll probably follow up on that on the main show 
But uh, the UE was one of the first unions to fight back against many of the labor management cooperation schemes, basically saying that labor peace is not in our interest. I mean, the, the we're not the first people to come up with this idea. We've kind of actually gotten this from these really amazing leaders in the rank and file union movement. Yeah. And so just other ways that we can show like that the UE's militancy is not only ref- like confined to their rhetoric or perhaps their political practice, but is genuinely how they do run their union. So like as an example, in December 2008, members of UE Local 1110 in Chicago responded to attempts to close their factory by occupying their workplace, Republic Ooh, Windows and Doors, which like, if, if you've listened to the show, we love a good workplace occupation, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, because of, you know, how violent the cops are here in the U.S., we don't really see a lot of them. So seeing one in the U.S. and in 2008, which was not that long ago, like that's nearly unheard of, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and their militancy in this case, in the, the case of Republic Windows and Doors, they forced one of the nation's most powerful banks to come to the table and negotiate. And they eventually won a $1.75 million settlement for the workers and a reopening of the factory. So like, again, it's, it's like they, it's not just rhetoric. Like they put this stuff into practice and they actually like the understanding of the power and necessity of the strike as a weapon and not as like something you really want to avoid is I think one of the things that really characterizes the the rank and file unions that we're going to be talking about throughout the series. Um, and another way that we've seen them really pushing for workplace democracy is that they have long been advocates for independent unions in Mexico. Like we've covered a bunch of stories recently. Uh, we're going to be covering some of the history of that on an upcoming second part of my AFL CIO or CIA series. And but UE like has been on this issue for a long time. Like while at the same time that you would see like the AFL CIO and some of the other more class collaborationist unions in the U S continuing to support the uh, Confederacion de Trabajadores de Mexico, which is like the, the, which is the gigantic union confederation in Mexico. That's long been allied with the Mexican government, especially the PRI, which ran the country for, nearly a century. Yeah, almost 100 years. Yeah. And so for a long time, you've seen a lot of the business unionists aligned with the CTM, despite the fact that it was acting primarily as a company union, not actually helping the workers, oftentimes fighting their own members for the whatever policy a, a company said was needed for the economy. But the UE has partnered with independent unionists in Mexico for years, including the authentic labor front, like for decades at this point. And they have been, you know, on the front lines of this issue and well out ahead of a lot of other U.S. labor unions fighting for unions that will actually represent their workers, function democratically and not just be a a HR department for whatever company that they're they're working for. And so, like. Again, like we don't, I don't want to get too heavy handed on my attacking the AFL CIO. They have in recent years come around on this issue and they are now supporting independent unions like uh, Cynthia and the other ones that we've talked about that have recently been succeeding in, pl- in like uh, places like Silao against GM and in other like 
auto parts plants in northern Mexico. So that's very good. It's it's been, that's been a welcome change in the actions of the AFL CIO. But the UE yeah. was on this at from the beginning. I want to just mm-hmm. point out there that yeah, with the reforms of the AFL CIO, I mean we've even seen like locals or even statewide chapters like in South Dakota with um uh Cooper Caraway? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Cooper Caraway, and how, you know, they struggled against the ex- exclusion of communists in the bylaws of the AFL itself. Yeah. So, yeah, there has definitely been a, a improvement in the, you know, internal struggle, like the class struggle, really, within the AFL-CIO in recent years, which has been very welcome. But one of the things that I just, I guess I want to underline about the connection between the good political positions taken by the UE and the rank and file democracy within it is that it's like, that's not a random connection. It's like when you have a union that is run in a class collaborationist business union style, where you have a small strata of professional staff who mm-hmm. run the union and serve as the interface between the businesses and the workers and the workers themselves don't really have much day-to-day role in the operation of the union. It becomes very easy for the like outward political positions and policies of that union to become dominated by the whims of that small that small group of people which makes it very easy for what is otherwise meant to be a working class organization to take anti-working class positions but if you actually do run your union in a democratic fashion, even if, you know, you may have some members of your union that are reactionary and have reactionary positions. We live in America. We are bombarded with reactionary propaganda from the moment we are born. So that's Mm -hmm. basically inevitable. Uh, But because the union is run in a democratic fashion where everyone actually has a say in the policies, that means that over time, that union is much more likely to take consistently pro-working class positions because it's, the, the actual structural manner in which those positions are taken are within the grasp of the actual workers. And so the majority of the people within the union are going to end up pushing for generally pro-working class positions more often. And so like, that's where we're getting these results rather than if you like, when you have a, a business unionist sort of setup where you have like the AFL-CIO under a George Meany, who is a like psychotic anti-communist and like pro-capitalist, then it's very easy for somebody who can monopolize power to then, you know, turn things the other way. And so we also see that in the current political program of the UE, where rather than just following the path of tailing the Democratic Party, which we see for many, many unions, even unions who otherwise I think are pretty good and I think whose hearts are in the right place, (laughs) but are fundamentally from a political angle basically captured by the Democratic Party in ways that we've talked about how this is so detrimental and so wasteful of of union funds. But the UE, unlike so many other major unions, they don't run a a PAC, a political action committee, to fund candidates from their dues money. Instead, at their conventions every two years, which, like, that's another thing, is that they have conventions every two years, which most unions do not have them that often. Um, Like, they vote on all of their political positions that the union is going to take from the membership. And so the rank and file determine the political direction of the union and they build their political action primarily through on the ground struggle rather than just donations to ruling class parties. 
Yeah, which is really essential because giving money to Democrats or Republicans or any other mainstream U.S. party for that matter is just a huge waste of your time. You may as well flush it down the toilet. But the UE doesn't flush it down the toilet because they have this rank and file basis uh, for organizing completely baked into their actual union constitution. So the express purpose of this is they don't want a detached bureaucracy in the union leadership. Uh, and so to prevent that, their constitution limits the pay of top union officers to the top salary paid in the industry so that the leadership in the union make no more than the highest paid workers that are members of the union itself. And that's really, really smart because then it's like, okay, you're, you're managing or administrating this union. It's easy to like get coerced or, or, um, uh, fall be, prey to to the temptations, be influenced by uh, the corporation. Uh, and if this is baked into your union constitution that you're only able to make as much as the highest paid workers that you represent, then you have to get them a raise to get right. you a raise, which reminds, is just a real... Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, of Cuba's democracy and how when people are elected into power in Cuba, they're basically held at the same wage of the job they previously held in order to not get some sort of true... Uh, like leg up on on anyone else just by being a representation a representative of the, of the community. Yeah, yeah, and I mean we don't even make politicians you know stop administrating businesses when they get elected to office in this country. So, but yeah, I mean uh, as as the uh, UE actually says on their website, uh, the way they explain it, the quote here is: uh, "We believe it's too easy for labor leaders to develop boss like points of view if they've become comfortable with boss sized salaries," and so the the top salary that these union leadership uh, make right now is about $75,000, which is a nice salary, but it's not like an insanely high number. It's certainly not what the CEO is making. Uh, and so while many major, while some major unions only hold their conventions once, like every five years, twice a decade, uh, the UE holds theirs every two years. And it's a lot of work to hold these meetings, but it forces the union to be accountable to the membership. And it really increases like the amount of intra-union communication that you can have among the workers. Uh, another thing that they have baked into their union is militancy. Uh, this is, I think this is more of a values thing than actually enshrined in their constitution. But at their most recent convention, they did pass resolutions calling for, quote, the continued use of the strike as the primary weapon against the employer, characterized by careful planning and timing, full membership involvement, and mobilization of the, com the community, which is like... That's that's basically all of the things that we ask for on this show yeah. from the U.S. labor movement. Uh, and then the union's members have also placed major emphasis on continually educating their membership, both on organizing tactics and on more broadly political education, which are both extremely you know vital and essential for making sure that the workers in your union maintain their militancy. And we've suffered defeats As I turn through the pages And look back through time This one single question Stands out in my mind Today we may prosper Today we live free But if it weren't for the union Where would we be? It's our union, our union That defends our rights But our union's as strong As our will is to fight For the union is you And the union is me 
So stand up and stand by our union From its humble beginnings our union has grown So no working person need struggle alone But no gain that's been made has been made without cost Together we'll see that no gain's ever lost Take a look at those countries where workers aren't free And if it weren't for the union, where would we be? It's our union, our union that defends our rights But our union's as strong as our will is to fight For the union is you, and the union is me So stand up and stand by our union Stand in the union against the new right But you think on your own you can withstand their might The answer is written in our history If it weren't for the union, where would we be? It's our union, our union that defends our rights But our union's as strong as our will is to fight For the union is you and the union is me Stand up and stand by our union And the unions they blame Well Franco and Pinochet They said the same If our union they weaken If our union they break Then where's our defense From becoming enslaved So would you choose bondage Above liberty And if it weren't for the union Where would we be It's our union, our union That defends our rights But our union's as strong As our will to fight for the union is you and the union is me so stand up and stand by our union it's our union our union that defends our rights but our union's as strong as our will is to fight for the union is you and the union is me so stand up and stand by our union